You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. And um, so now we are going to hear from Marshall in another capacity as our kickoff speaker. I won't say keynote because we're privileged to have a very distinguished keynote speaker later in the afternoon. But Marshall is going to talk now about how can America ever come to honest education? I give you Marshall Fritz again. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that was a great introduction. I appreciate it. Hi, everybody. How can America ever get to? And I should probably, now I'll argue with myself in the selection of the title. Uh, how can ever, America ever return to honest education? Are we talking about an education reform? Is this movement essentially an education reform? It has elements of that. Are we talking about a massive political change? After 164 years of advancing, hardly creeping, of advancing school socialism, what is socialism? Socialism is the administration, ownership and administration by the government of the means of production, whether goods or services. The English are plain spoken enough in this particular circumstance to recognize that they have socialized medicine. Uh, the teachers, excuse me, this, the doctors and the nurses work for the government. The hospitals and clinics are owned by the government. Uh, Canada, similarly, even worse, they prohibit private practice. And they call it socialism, and then, well, they should. The Soviets tried to use it to grow wheat. They had collective uh, agriculture. They used agricultural socialism. They were, again, honest enough. Can you imagine that, commies? Honest enough <laughs> to call it socialism. <laughs> it was a lapse, perhaps. But they were honest enough to call it socialism. Do we Americans call our schooling system socialism? <gasps> Why, these are community schools. Why, half the teachers, you can't even convince them that they're government schools. <laughs> right? And yet, if it waddles like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it copulates with other ducks and produces more ducks, it's a duck. Right? And if you use taxes for its support and it has compulsory attendance, and has things called catchment areas where they can catch the children and crowd them into a school-to-prison facility. Okay? But still, they call those community schools. The great Thomas Sowell at uh, Hoover Institution says we're not honest enough in America to use the S-word, socialism, about our own socialism. So is this thing a great political movement to overthrow school socialism? 
after five generations of being so used to it, we don't even know that it is socialism? I'll say yes. It is that. But it is not merely that. This thing that we're embarking on, this thing that you are at the very beginning of this movement, if we're going to get to one million signatures on the proclamation for the separation of school and state, and we have 26,000 now, and if you calculate out the body weight, we are approximately the weight of a three-month-in-utero child compared to the weight of an Olympic athlete in his or her 20s. So to give you the idea of how small we are, it's hard to even notice this. Okay? But little things can grow into big things. Somebody here came and it's bigger than I am. Who's that guy that's taller than I am? Toby? Well, stand up. Prove it. <laughs> I present to you a former zygote. A former... Right. Yes. He is now a product of birth. Okay? Right. A wandering about glob of protoplasm. You might pick up on some of my, some of my other sentiments in other areas, and they are not a part of the Alliance for the Separation of School and State position, you can be assured. That those are personal. What we're talking about here at this teeny size that we are is a moral change in America. A moral change, whether you think morality comes from God or whether it evolved is not my point. Whether you believe in natural law or, or revelation as well is not my point. All of us would rec do recognize that when parents give birth to a child, that they have some responsibilities. Most of us do not go to the county, of new county department of newborns to get the swaddling clothes, the receiving blanket. Nor do we complain that it's burlap still. We understand that we as parents, frequently grandmothers, take on this responsibility of providing a receiving blanket. We don't think when a child is born, we're going to say, oh, good, now we're going to tax the neighbors to provide the pizza, right, and the meat and potatoes and the vegetarian dishes, right? This child needs to eat. We don't go to the county department of nutrition for our 21 meals a week. We don't live in pizza districts in America where those darn vegetarians somehow swamped us because we were asleep. The carnivores and omnivores were asleep, and for the next two years, all you can get in your county, your pizza di district, is vegetarian pizza. We don't live in pizza districts. When parents give birth to a child, they know that they need to have a roof over that child's head because it might rain, walls because it might be windy, could be in Florida, They know a whole lot of things. But one thing they've forgotten, 
Five generations of forgetting. Holy mackerel. This kid's going to learn to need to learn some things. He's going to learn to learn left from right, blue from red, up from down, A from B, D from B. You know, might be dyslexic. Might going to get him straightened out there. Right, Sam? Sometime along the line, the kid's a little baby. We're not going to worry about it right now. He's 24 hours old. But somewhere along the line, we like to be able to get him to tell a D from a B. Well, we got some moral things to teach him, too, when he's two or two and a half years old and he sees those Christmas tree uh, bulbs or uh, decorations. What does he think they're good for? Smashing. And we start teaching the child not to smash things, to respect other people's property. We put gates up sometimes <laughs> right? so that we don't have a... Uh, uh, too much temptation for our two- and three-year-old children. Is that you, Julie? Septcon is made. Julie Bunn is here, too. That's our um, affinity uh, parenting lady uh, from Monday morning. I told him they would recognize you because you'd be the one with a nursing baby. But, uh, pardon, your husband is nursing. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Modern times. <laughs> but in five generations, we've assumed with some very candy-coated words, we've assumed that it's quite all right to ignore the commandment not to covet our neighbor's donkey or his wife or his money to pay the tuition for our child to go to school. We've learned to ignore that covetousness in our own heart, to covet someone else's money. You know, bank robbers case the joint. That's sort of advanced coveting. Okay? And we sort of case the joint by taking polls and focus groups of whether the next tax increase can be accomplished. And then those who want to lead the charge to advance the covetousness, one more mill, one more dime, one more little tax increase. And we covet our neighbor's donkey, his money, to send our children to school. We're shirking the responsibility. Slothfulness, we think of it as couch potato watching the TV all the day long. I think C.S. Lewis has a much better uh, kind of uh, description of, cost of slothfulness. It's the inclination to do the easy thing from the right thing. Unless you think I'm pointing a bony finger at you, I'm pointing four of them at myself. Because while I was given the gift of a private, indeed Christian, um, education for, well, until I was in the 10th grade and we moved to Karachi, Pakistan. Heck, it was still private over there, too. <laughs> then they sent me to Switzerland for finishing school. I got kicked out before I got finished. But that was private, too. I didn't get on the dole until I went to college. Okay. I was given the gift of a privately financed 
honest education. I did not return that gift to my children. So if you hear passion, even anger, in my voice at times, I want to confess James 5.16 to you uh, Baptists, confess your sins one to another. I want to confess my sin of coveting my neighbor's money. When my child entered the first grade, oldest child, so that I could buy a Citroen DS21 Palace with leather. You know those things that look like vacuum cleaters without a handle? Those funny-looking cars that the French made called a Citroen? I bought one, and I was proud of that car. Then my child went to government school three blocks to the east, where he could have gone to a religious school of my denomination, three blocks to the west. But I couldn't afford both. So what we're talking about in this alliance, in this movement for honest education, is nothing less than a moral revival. Parents reassuming the duties and protecting their rights. How do we uh, get it done? How long is it going to take? How long do I have left to speak? Louder? Oh, okay, I'm on time. Which is always in, it gets me in trouble because then I relax. Because my spirit... <laughs> Sorry, I was paying attention to something else when you did that opening uh, earlier, Tom, and you have to catch me up on this uh, spirit guide stuff. Uh, but uh, knowing you, I'll assume that that's a, some sort of a metaphor. All righty. How do we accomplish that? How long might it take? If we're talking about a moral reassumption of duties and the protection of rights by parents. How do we accomplish that? How long might it take? Well, I think the first part is how do we get help parents to want to assume their duties? A friend of mine says there is no way to make money or even break even on a conference that teaches people to be more responsible. If you have one where they can make lots of money or get better looking, you can charge, and I know a guy that charges 5,000 bucks for a two-day conference, Jay Abraham. And people rave on how they got their money's worth. And he teaches them how to make more money. And if you say to people, hey, I can teach you to be more responsible, then well, you're going to have to pay me to come, and then I probably won't. <laughs> well, you're going to have empty chairs in the back of the room. <laughs> so how do we get people to want to be more responsible? Well, many of us have tried the bony finger approach, where we point our bony finger at a person. If we really want to pick a fight, we poke them a bit. You are covetous, you are prideful, you are slothful, you are so sinful, you are sending your child to a government school, and God doesn't like that. Right? 
Now, those of us who have tried that hundreds of times have found that for some part of the human condition, people rarely said, say, thank you for pointing out I've been wrong all of my life. <laughs> you know, have you tried it, Chappie? Yeah. <laughs> Has anybody else tried their own version of the bony finger approach? Huh? Yeah, yeah. Is there anybody that's found it's ever worked? Let him or her stand and be recognized as a liar. <laughs> all right. So we'll, we'll say, all right, let's not try the bony finger. It doesn't seem to get us where we get to, although it does make us feel good. Another proposal is federal legislation. One nation united in reading to children 24 minutes every night from a selected list of books and keeping records, daily records, contemporaneous records that can be expected at any time by the federal Reading to Your Child Act of 2006. Okay? We've got to bring in the troops and put serious threats of accountability. I'm talking jail time. Fines for people who do not read to their children because it's been proven that parents who read to their children, the children learn how to read. And parents who don't, for some reason, the child doesn't even want to learn to read. So it's simple. Well, I doubt if very many people in this room have thought very long and hard about how they can support federal legislation, federal reading legislation, although no child, excuse me, although America 2000 under President George Bush and uh, Goals 2000 under uh, President Clinton both had the, the goal of all children being ready to learn by the time they enter school. No plan of how to accomplish that. No concept of how it might be accomplished. No hope of it being accomplished. 50 states, guess how many achieved that goal? Zero. Eight, seven other goals. So that's eight goals total times 50 states. Okay? That's 400 goal states. So that's 400 chances we had, you know, for some state to accomplish some goal. Guess how many states accomplished one goal? Zero. Guess how many accomplished more than one goal? Zero. Guess what President Clinton did? at his library annunciation. Praise George Bush for his wonderful pulling together of the governors and them setting these goals. And then when he took over as president, he expanded the program to eight. And now George W. Bush has got No Child Left Behind, which is continuing this program okay. of accountability. 400 opportunities to meet one goal, not one achieved, how much accountability? At least Stalin had the decency to take out the, the agricultural supervisors after five years and shoot them. 
Right? I mean, there was accountability in the Soviet Union. Our guys just pretend it works. Right? At least the commies were honest. All children move at different speeds. The only way we can get all children, no, excuse me, no child to be left behind is to make sure that all children stand still. And I don't want you to even attempt to imagine an America where I didn't fall behind in music. Because the Van Cliburns would have had their fingers chopped off. Somebody named it for me a famous singer, lady singer. Would have had her throat, Aretha Franklin, would have had her throat cut to stop her from getting ahead of Marshall Fritz. Who knows what they would have done to Edelberg Humperdinck. All right. How do we get parents to want to do this? Federal legislation? I don't think so. I think the only way is example. It's the only way. And the homeschoolers, Denise, others have experienced this. I'll say dozens, but I'll bet it's been scores, or in Denise's case, with considering homeschooling, hundreds of times. A neighbor, a relative, a friend from church has remarked to her that privately she and her husband had been talking about, and every homeschooling family has experienced this, how different their children seem. And the love that they have for each other, and the respect that they have for their parents, their ability to talk to adults, their ability to talk about real issues and you know what is it that's different Chuck Colson once had an article in Christianity Today ten years ago that he has a plaque on his desk from St. Francis of Assisi and Francis's instructions to his mendicant monks preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. You've got to preach the good news of honest education by what people see in your family. And then when they ask a question, which may be a few years from now, then is your time to speak. And it'll be with open arms instead of the bony finger. How long is it going to take? William Wilberforce in 1797 or 98 thought it would be a good idea if the British Empire no longer participated in the slave trade. 20 years that was accomplished. And he said, you know, it'd be a good idea if the British Empire no longer had chattel slavery. And on, I think it's Juneteenth, um, 1836 or 7, 
slavery was ended in the Soviet Union. I mean, the, the British Empire. How long will it take? One generation? Two? I don't know. But I'm not going to count it in seconds, minutes, months, or years. I would like to make a prediction that I'll be long enough dead for that you all won't get to know whether it happened. But the hot issue in the presidential debates of 2048 or 2052 will be the extinction of government schools. Thank you very much for your kind attention.